This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 904, A Conversation with Larry Houston. Welcome to the Conversation Against Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 904. It's my conversation with Larry Houston. Larry worked on a lot of different uh, animated projects uh, during my youth uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but most particularly, and I think he would agree with this as well, he worked on the X-Men, the animated series, which is definitely the, the jewel in his crown uh, and definitely one of his uh, passion projects, uh, something he really brought a lot to. He was not he was uh, the director on X-Men, the animated series. He was uh, influential, uh, to say the least. Uh, he was instrumental in so many different things uh, that you probably love about that show if you're a big fan of the X-Men animated series. Um, it's interesting that you know we still refer to it as X-Men, the animated series. There have been other X-Men shows, but it is the animated series. Uh, it's the one that everyone talks about. It's about to have 30, uh, 30 years uh, since its first episode aired uh, as of next year. Um, so we're you know 29 years removed from it. It's kind of crazy that it's been around that long. Um, as we talked with Larry about the show, he mentions kind of, bit of a resurgence that the show has had um, pre- predominantly since Disney Plus because suddenly it became uh, a lot easier for people to access and watch the show, um, which they would not have been able to do before that. Um, they would not have been able to access it without buying the DVDs. Uh, there was a DVD collection and that um, I was, you know, I was I remember buying it the first instance I could have pre-ordered every one, but not everyone has those. Um, if you didn't get those DVDs, they're not really running anywhere else, and you wouldn't be able to enjoy, you know, this amazing show. And yeah, Disney Plus has brought it back. It's brought back a lot of shows that maybe aren't at the same level. I mean, you have all the kind of '80s uh, Spider-Man shows. You got the Spider-Man syndicated show, which actually Larry worked on as well, as well as Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends. You have. Um, uh, the Incredible Hulk show from the 80s. So there's a lot of other material that's kind of back in in enjoyable now, uh, or ex- at least accessible, I should say. Um, you have, you know, Iron Man and uh, Fantastic Four, which are part of the Marvel Action Hour in 94. Those are on there as well. Um, Larry worked on the second season of Fantastic Four. We'll get into that as well. So this was a really fun conversation for me as a fan of his work. I really wanted to talk to Larry and make sure he understood how much I appreciated and loved his work and how much it meant to me um, as someone who was, you know, in 92, I would have been been you know almost nine years old eight or nine when the show first debuted um so it was tremendously impactful i it's not a a stretch to say that it's part of what eventually led me really to getting into comics specifically x-men comics is really where i started it may not be what kept me into comics i would say that's more amazing spider-man um but it's really the x-men that got me in and i can i would say it's pretty easy to say that you know x-men the animated series is a big reason for that so this was really fun and enjoyable for me i did extend our invitation to larry to hopefully come back um, I would love to have him back on the show. There's so much in his career we didn't get to. I never even got into the you know origins of, of Larry as a, as a young fan of comics. Uh, we kind of jumped in with a conversation about Jack Kirby. We ended with talking about Stan Lee. And there's a lot of good stuff about X-Men, the animated series in the middle. Uh, I do have a shout-out to a show that I really like called Cops. Uh, not not the, the Fox Cops that everyone kind of thinks of, but the, uh, the animated kind of um, uh, 
police officer slash superheroes is basically a good way of putting it in terms of everyone having special abilities. But uh, it was a, a show that I think pro- people probably have forgotten about now. But uh, I mentioned it. He was like, oh, yeah. Like, like, you know, probably no one's ever talked to him about cops in a long time. Anyways, uh, I have prattled on way too long. I know what you're here for. You want to hear Larry talk about working on the X-Men, and you will not be disappointed. Uh, if you want to email me at the show, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Listen to us on Stitcher. And thanks again for downloading this episode. Uh, if you are a first-time listener, uh, you can check our uh, our back catalog. I have a conversation with Cal Dodd, the original voice of Wolverine on the X-Men animated series. Sorry, the voice of Wolverine in the animated series. You can say the original voice of Wolverine, which is technically not true since he did the character did show up previous to this, uh, both in Pride of the X-Men and in the uh, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends show. So uh, I can't say he was the first voice, but he's definitely the voice. Uh, I had a conversation with him. I've had two conversations with Eric and Julia Leewald, uh, who were the showrunners. Uh, Eric was the, was the showrunner, and uh, his wife worked extensively on, on the show as well. Uh, so they were, have written two different books. Um, previously on X-Men is one of them, and the other one is the uh, it's an art book. It's uh, I don't actually have it in front of me. Uh, the Art of Creating... I think it's the... The art of, art of creating the X-Men animated series or something along those lines. You look up Eric Leewald, you'll find it. Anyways, if you want to check out those episodes, there's two episodes that I've interviewed them. And then again, I've had Cal Dodd as well. So uh, I've also had Rick Hoberg on the show as well. Uh, he worked a lot um, on the show as well. And he's, his work is actually pretty extensively featured in that art book that I mentioned uh, by Eric and Julie Leewald as well. So if you want to check that out, um, you know, the, he... The interview with him was really fun and interesting. Uh, just find out more about, again, the animation side as well. He was in episode 820 uh, last year. Anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, let's jump right into the episode. I know this is what you're here for, and I'm sorry I made you jump through five and a half minutes of me talking. But here we are as we finally present the conversation with Larry Houston. Enjoy. Larry, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. No, I have a lot of questions, and obviously, I want to know about your your kind of. Uh, I want to go way back to when you were a kid and when you first got into comics, and how that eventually, obviously, uh, made a huge difference later in your career. But before I do that, because of the day, we're recording this two days after Jack Kirby's birthday, and you put up a nice post on Twitter. I always love your Twitter account. First of all, I'll say that we put up a nice post about you know giving respect to the king, and you mentioned that you knew him in Roz, which I did not know. Uh, can you elaborate about uh, how you knew Jack? Um, I met I met Jack and Roz through a mutual friend, and um, physically I live in uh, a city, Thousand Oaks, which was basically adjacent to where they're living. They're, they were living about I don't know about ten blocks away, mm. so I got a chance to go to visit them at their house and stuff, and uh, and talk to them. It was really nice. You know, Kirby was always welcoming, and uh, he was like a real friendly guy, and he always looked saw the best in people when when you talk to them mm-hmm. and Roz was the same way she was like you know really nice woman really nice wife and uh, it was it was quite enjoyable um, I I worked you know that was he gave oh that's right he gave me um, I've been assaulted he gave me two two originals that he uh, um, drew he said to Larry and, and uh, one was uh, an original of Orion from the Eternals. Oh wow! And I, I think Athena, uh, like they're peanuts basically. Mm-hmm. And and he signed it to me, so it's like I was like jumping up, for, jumping for joy <laughs> inside of my inside of my head. But I had to say, you know, I had to have a calm exterior when he gave it to me. But I was <laughs> like dying with, you know, 
with joy on the inside. When you first uh, met him, was it pretty surreal to meet someone who had such a huge artistic, you know, kind of impact on you in terms of what the world he he opened up? Oh yeah, it's like meeting a you know a movie star that you've been watching all your life, and suddenly he's right in front of you, <laughs> and you're talking to him like a normal person. Um, yeah, it was, it's it's it it's like a dream come true. I put it that way. Um, and it was surreal because I, in the industry that I'm in, the animation industry, I got a chance to meet Jack in person, and I also got to meet like Gil Kane in person, hmm. and John Buscema. Those are the three when I grew up with. Like the three artists that I love the most. Wow. Um, yeah, John. When I was working at Marvel Productions, um, John Buscema, they hired they had John Buscema come out to film that the video how to draw comics the Marvel way oh yeah of course so he was yeah so he came to Marvel Productions I was working there in 81 and uh, so myself and my friends we took John out to lunch a couple of times and uh, you know it was like wow you're meeting John and he was he was drawing some sketches you know at the studio which it was funny because when he would have sketches that he didn't like if he tossed them in the trash and <laughs> me and my friends would judge we were going through the trash going Wow, he's throwing this away. <laughs> so we got a lot of those sketches that he just discarded that were like gorgeous. Um, Gil Kane, you know, taking him to lunch. He was working at Hannibal Bear on uh, when I was working on Thunder, hmm. and uh, got a chance to you know meet with him and stuff like that. Um, and Kirby, I didn't meet at work, but I would see Kirby more at his house. I'd visit him at his home when. When, a, when it was appropriate, because you know he was always drawing and stuff. Yeah, I guess he was. He was always busy working on something, right? Yeah, and um, he really. See, Kirby and Kane really uh, liked animation. Uh, one of the best things about it is that they were part of the the, uh, the union out here, and they got a weekly paycheck and they got medical benefits. Mm which when you're working in comics, you don't have those. And so they were really happy to to work in animation. And it was full of people like me. It was full of people like, oh my God, you know, we were like, you know, <laughs> bowing, praying to the God of Kirby and Kane and the rest of them. You know, it's like, you know, they got nothing but accolades from us in, in the business. And uh, so they were very welcome in, in, our, in animation. So, you know, it was nice, you know, talking with Mark Evanier about how much they really enjoyed that last chapter of their life to be working in animation and to be to, to see the how much people enjoy their work how much they respect them and, and uh, it was great great times I don't want to age you up at all but does it feel like you're at that point where people are really starting to have a deeper respect and understanding for the work you did on a lot of the you know the animated series that you've worked on uh, people kind of finally realizing your contributions to that do you feel like you're kind of at that stage where people are starting to give you that same level of respect and, and adoration yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of crossed over to the other side yeah it's like um, people uh, since um Disney Plus got out there. Uh, people have now rediscovered what I've been doing, and uh, and I've been going to. I retired back in 2016, so I've been to, I've been going to conventions every year except for the COVID year. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, it was nice to, you know, see people who uh, responded to all the stuff I've worked on over the years. It's like 35 years of, uh, of work. Um, God knows how many hours of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's kind of nice that people people recognize me for the work I've done. And, um, you know, the best, the best compliment I've gotten from them is that um, the work that I've done inspired them to become either an artist, which is great because that's how it was for me when I was watching uh, shows of, you know, I'm going to date myself, but like I used to watch the original Johnny Quest when it came on the air mm-hmm. and, you know, Space Ghost and, and the uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Herculoids and, and films like stuff like that. That inspired me to, you know, it, it just like triggered your imagination, my imagination to, to like, wow, this is cool, this is so great, and uh, and and the stuff that I worked on uh, has inspired. You know, I found some people that said because of that they went, they became got into my business of animation, mm-hmm. and and then I've had some people who have spoken to me and some other other voice actors of the X Men of how the X-Men was pivotal in their, in their growing up in their childhood, because some people were bullied and they were, they were like short, so they gravitated to a Wolverine and mm. his no-nonsense approach to bullying. Um, there, there are people who were like being, you know, gay or um, just ostracized from society, and so the, the stories we were able to put across in the X-Men really helped them when I when I call it helped them gain you know that cognitive uh, support mm-hmm. in that in their lives so that at some point they they could gain the the uh, strength to do it on their own but it, it helped them at certain critical parts of their early development so we got a lot of compliments like that I shouldn't say compliments um, what's the word um, Present uh, the, the words in that presentation. I can't remember the word right now, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but anyway, so the, the the nice things that people respect, they acknowledge what I've done, and they, and I'm glad that it made a difference. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing, you know. For sure. It's interesting that, you know, again, in the last few years when you had the Lee Wald's two books now have come out and I feel like you're the the kind of breakout star of those books because it becomes, I think it's underscored how integral you were in that project of the X-Men animated series and how so much of what a lot of comic fans love in it is part of, you know, a big part of your work, like all the different cameos. Like if anyone does not follow you already on Twitter, they really should because the amount of stuff you put out and kind of showing all the little tidbits, the things that you kind of worked in there and, and, and sly different ways is just uh, mind blowing. And I, it does make me wonder when are we going to get a book from you? <laughs> I, I guess I could. I just never thought of myself as a writer, but uh, I've, I've had people tell me that off and on. You know, I should write a book. I'm going, I don't remember everything. <laughs> but I could give it a shot, I guess. Um, no, with the X-Men, it, it was my, the, out of all the shows I've directed, uh, that was my favorite um, because I was allowed a lot of freedom to make the show the way I wanted to see it, not the way someone else wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that first year was the most critical because they 
the people at the time when we were trying to get the show on the air, a successful show was either, you know, making making it like either Super Friends or Scooby Doo, hmm. and we didn't want to do that. And it was lucky that there were like four or five of us, including the Lee Walls and Wilminio, Ricola, and myself. Um, we know we knew what we wanted to do, and um, we had to stand up to it on different occasions politically, to the point where you know when they started to insist that it had to be this way, we had to tell them. I'm not. This is paraphrasing, but we basically had to tell them like, if this is the show you want to do, we're the wrong creative team, and we're all going to quit at the same time. Hmm. And it made them back off, but it also made the first season of the X very very critical because we didn't get publicity. They thought we were going to be, we're doing it all wrong. It was, it was going to be a one and done uh, series. So I knew I only had one shot to make the show work. And so I just had to go by the seat of my pants and try to make the show as best I could. And I had to try and channel my inner eight-year-old inside of me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, try and put the adult cynicism over here and try and remember, try and put together and re-visualize re maybe the storyboards as they came in. You know, what would make the eight-year-old inside of me get excited about the sequence of this image? And I would put that into the show. I, w I would redraw uh, images that would be more um, something that if I was a fan watching it, that would excite the kids, you know, excite the little eight-year-old in me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and the cameos, what I did was, when I would add the cameos, um, I would only add them if it didn't interfere with the original story. Mm. Like if you were just a regular person watching it and you saw a cameo, it'd be just like a, a fire hydrant. You wouldn't know what it is. <laughs> but if you're a fan, and you saw that for like one second, it popped on the screen and it popped off. You knew who it was. And when I was a kid in the 60s, Stanley did the same thing to me. Hmm. He would, um, because DC controlled distribution of Marvel back then, they only allowed Marvel to put out maybe six or eight book titles. Yep. And so if you're, when I would be reading Spider-Man, they'd have one panel with maybe Thor going through the scene. And Spider-Man would say, hey, watch where you're throwing that hammer or something like that, right? <laughs> and then he'd have a little footnote. If you want to need to, you need to go out and buy Tales to Suspense or Tales to Astonish number to see where, where Thor is going. <laughs> and that, that was what, basically, he was um, trying to cross-promote the books, but he was, connect, he was creating a connected universe by, by accident. And so I remember that as a kid, like, wow, that was so cool. So when I got a chance to do the, uh, the X-Men, I knew that was something that would work. And the first time I actually tried it, I tried to put Spider-Man in a background somewhere and they told me I couldn't do it. <laughs> and they never told me why. So the next time I got a chance to do it was an episode where they had all the, all the mutants were slaves. And they called all the mutants like mutant one, two, three, four, five, six, something like that. So I went home and I brought my comic book collection to work because back then there's no internet mm -hmm. and uh, put it on a Xerox machine. I would give it to my storyboard artist here. 
put this over here, put this over here, put this over here. And I got them to um, take mutant one, two, three, four, five, six. I said, make this mystique, make this the block, uh, Sunfire, make this North Star, all the other characters that I put in there. But I kept the characters that I kept the same names. Mutant <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. And it went through like, like nothing, you know, nobody even said a word. So from that point forward, all of my cameos were never called what they were. And that's how I got all of them into the show. I wonder, because, if, you could, I wonder if you could get away with that these days. No, 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 no. No, because no, at the time they thought we were, we were going to be one and done. Mm-hmm. They thought we were doing everything wrong. So nobody was watching me. And so I just, everything I did in the show, I just basically, I didn't ask permission. I just did it the way I wanted to do it. Mm. As a no way could do that today. No, as a child watching it, especially like that episode you mentioned, um, it, I feel like it made the world feel lived in because you know that those were actual characters. Like, there's just something to like when you have kind of nameless background characters, but the fact that you made them a specific character that you knew and that you drew them that way and gave them those powers, it made the background feel more alive. Um, as opposed yeah. to if they had just been, as you said, just kind of like you know random mutants. Yeah, it, to, to a degree, it's like I discouraged the artists working with me from creating miscellaneous random mutants because there's so many of them. There's no reason to just make up a, 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 a random mutant. You know, some, some, sometimes we did because, you know, we're, the people I was working with, they're artists. They want to be creative, so mm-hmm. I would let them create some of them, some random stuff once in a while. But the majority, I tried to make them specific characters from the books, you know, like all the Morlocks and stuff like that, mm. and uh, and you know cameos here and there. Can I ask you a okay, very speci- can I ask you a very specific cameo question before I get back to the regular flow of our discussion? <laughs> okay. okay. Um, in I guess what was originally supposed to be the end of the show and Beyond Good and Evil, when you have the caretaker uh, character turns into a mortis at the very end. Was that in the script or was that just you having fun? Um, that was, I, okay, you're asking me something. That was specifically in the script. Okay. But I didn't, I didn't direct that episode. Oh, did you not? Okay, my apologies. No, I didn't direct that one. That was, uh, uh, I directed the first four years of the X-Men Mm. And the fifth year was directed by my assistant director, um, Frank Squalacci. Okay. So that was under his purview. Okay. So um, I'm assuming it was in the script, but um, it it could have been, he could have done the same thing I did, but I'd have to ask him. Mm Mm-hmm. A huge part of the show, obviously, is you know the visual aesthetic and the way that the characters look. And in in one of the books that the Lee Wallets have written, they kind of say that you know you really lobbied to use the Jim Lee kind of inspired designs um, as the kind of the basis of for the show. Can you explain like kind of what you were thinking at the time? Was it just because Jim Lee's stuff was really blowing up at the time, and that's what people would have seen in the comic if they went to read the comic after the show? Did you just really like those designs? Like, what kind of fueled that thought process? Well, back, okay, back when there's a pilot we did, but I did, I was like one of the co-directors. Mm-hmm. We did a pilot called Pride of the X-Men. As myself, Will Manuel, Rick Colbert, and we took the style of the books back then that were based upon, um, let's see if I get this right, it was based upon the um, the Cockrum style. Okay. In the Cockrum lineup back then. 
back then and had um, Kitty Pride and Cyclops. I mean Colossus and uh, Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Okay, that and then fast forward about six years later when we did the X Men, the current style in the books was Jim Lee, mm-hmm. and so we knew we. I I liked his style, and we knew we we could take his style and simplify it for animation, and so. Um, we made it animation friendly to a degree, you know, his style worked for work well for animation. Just, we just had to simplify a lot of the lines and, mm-hmm. and stuff because it's, uh, you can't have, you know, unless it's computer animation, which didn't exist then, you could have only so much detail on, on a character if you wanted to animate and get back to America on time. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, if a character's got too much detail on it, you'll never... And you're asking the animators to, to animate it, like turn it like a Disney film. It's like, nope, that's not going to happen. They're going to make, they're going to miss their deadlines, and then you're going to be really screwed. So, uh, but no, I liked his style, Jim Lee's style for animation back then. So that's why. Part of it was that we liked the style, and part of it was that um, it was the current style. Hmm. Like I do feel like so. your your show kind of made that style probably last even longer like obviously Jim Lee's stuff was very uh, memorable and obviously very influence worthy but the fact that it was also in your show and your show again became such a huge kind of zeitgeist for the X-Men at the time probably made those style of costumes last even longer than they might have without your show probably I would say that I mean if, if there was a time where I think um, after Jim Lee was a, a Joe Matter era was mm-hmm. took over the books and he had a totally he had an anime he had an American anime style which would have been that would have been a nice style too to, to run to run toward if we had to back then if we had rebooted it or, or done it like a separate series like X Factor or something it would have been nice to adapt that style to animation but you know so our, our thing was what are the kids what were the kids reading the books today and that's why we went up that was one of the main reasons we did uh, Jim Lee. I'm jumping around a bit, but I know like when you left X-Men or like when you weren't directing it anymore, I know that in and around, and I might be getting the timeline wrong, so I apologize, but was this in and around the time when you were really trying to get the Black Panther show on the, like off the ground or was that in and around this period or? Um, one of the, well, one of the uh, attractions they, they, they told me, um, I had written, let's see, one of the let me let me back up. One of the uh, attractions for me leaving X Men to go do the Fantastic Four was I wanted to do a Black Panther episode. You know, nobody had done the Black Panther yet, and I told them that I wanted to do the class all the classic stories of of the, of the Fantastic Four because those are the two two books that I read as a kid that were that were like my two top two books, mm-hmm. and um, so. That was one of, and I told him, you know, I just, I don't want any top-down management. Just let me do the show the way I feel it should be done. And they agreed to it. So that's why I left. Um, When I was at the X-Men prior, I had seen a a Black Panther script from New York. And it didn't be quite honest. It was terrible. But (laughs) it was like, I'm glad I had a chance to, uh, to do my version of the X of uh, Black Panther and, and Fantastic Four, I was able to 
adapt the very first two stories he ever appeared in. We mushed it together into one episode. And uh, I tried to make that show as accurate as I could to the, to the comic books. I literally would take panels from the comic book and I would animate them. So if you, if you had the book, you could say, oh yeah, that's this panel, that's this panel. <laughs> you know? So, um, I guess what you could say it's kind of around when the, trying to get the Black Panther off the ground, but it was like, the time, when, I guess when I read that script and between that and the time I actually got left the series, I guess it was within six or eight months of each other. Okay. So I guess, yeah, I guess it's around that same time. What? I'm I'm curious. Uh, so I've always I've always liked that Fantastic Four show, but it's always been very clear that the second season was obviously very markedly different. I didn't realize it was because that 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 was obviously your, I guess your presence coming on the on the on the series. But it always felt like yeah, you it was much more uh, drawn from the comics in terms of the inspiration of the stories. The art just felt different um, when they brought you in. Was it to kind of retool the show, or like how what was that focus like when they brought you over onto that particular show? I was told that the first season was not well it was not well received hmm. and that they were doing in order for syndication they needed to do 26 episodes okay and the first 13 they it was not well, well received and they wanted someone to take over the second 13 episodes and to re- reboot it basically and so that's why I, that's why I came on board to to do that trying to make the make the FF you know try have someone to try and do the books that I grew up with basically mm-hmm. in the 60s 60s and 70s to try and take those books adapt them and uh, put them on the screen and it's like okay I'm there you know and my assistant you know Squalachi have been with me from the almost from the beginning mm-hmm. so I know if I left the X-Men in his hands he could he could run with it, so I was confident the X. They had been the top of the ratings for four years, so I, I figured I left it in good hands and I could move on. Mm-hmm. When, when you were working on FF, when you get to do the you know the classic uh, and a blind man shall lead them, um, was there any issues with using Daredevil on the show? Considering like where was his? I don't know what obviously his right situation would have been at the time, but obviously he wasn't technically an FF property. So was there any issue in being able to use the character? No, and also he was in the FF stories. He, he mm. was. Uh, it was a. I can't remember the number, but you know. The story we adapted came directly from the books. For sure. But the FF had lost their powers, and then he's, Daredevil's helping him out against Dr. Doom, who's out there trying to kill him. So we didn't have an issue with that now. When uh, when you came on the show, uh, one of the notable things about the second up, second season of FF is it has a revamped opening sequence, which was um, like really fantastic and no, no pun intended, but uh, and a, a great kind of reference to point to classic kind of moments in FF's past. Um, were you, I guess, behind the designing of that particular opening? Um, I was not. Oh, you were but not. I was okay. consulted. No, I was not. That was mainly done by. Um, let's see. His name is uh, Dick Sabas, was a storyboard artist, and um, Tom T was the supervising uh, director, and we had worked out that we wanted to do classic covers um we picked classic covers and then i, I didn't have time to, to draw all that stuff so <laughs> we gave it it was given to dick sabas because i was working on the series 
And so that that's my, to my to that extent, I was kind of involved peripherally, but the majority, like ninety percent of the work, with those two guys. Hmm. Um, as opposed to when I was on the X Men, I drew those opening titles all of them myself. So I did that the intro to the X Men myself. When one of the things that uh, was so interesting, again, reading the Lee Wald's books about kind of the process of developing, you know, that extremely iconic opening uh, sequence uh, for X-Men is, you know, all the different permutations that kind of went through. Uh, the fact that you guys, you know, the I guess some of the notes were coming in that, you know, you kind of had to spell out who the characters were, which to me as a, as a kid watching that, I would have been nine or ten years old. It, I, I think it worked perfectly well because I knew exactly who everyone was just by watching the opening title sequence because uh, you have all the characters and I guess you actually designed some of the actual kind of uh, lettering for some of the characters that didn't have pre-existing kind of logos is that correct? Yep um, when when I was doing the in the preliminary stages of the designing it I we call back uh, to Bob Harris he was in charge of the uh, Marvel he was the editor in chief back then and I said look you got to remember, there's no internet. There's only fax machines. <laughs> and so we said, you know, I need logos on all of the characters. And so they only sent me some, and some that had never created any. So I had to create, I think I created Storm. I think I created um, Jubilee and Professor X and Jean Grey. Um, I was able to get a few, but it was by fax. <laughs> old technology, it was fax machine, man. I had to get a fax machine, send it over. And so we, we I, I put those as placeholders in the storyboards until we got the actual, they had to mail it to us. And then when <laughs> we sent this, when we got the real logos, we sent it overseas so that they could drop it into the show as, as you know, as the real logos that they can use in the shots. Was your- and, um was there ever any, any yeah. kind of legal discussions about, like, I mean, you're effectively kind of starting branding for some of these characters that were that didn't previously exist. Was there any com- conversations about that? Or, again, was this the show that they weren't, wasn't sure if it was going to work anyway, so they didn't really worry about it? For me, creating a brand new logo? Well, for some of the characters. Like, you're carrying, you know, kind of specific kind of typefaces for those characters that, you know, a whole generation is used to seeing the characters with that kind of typeface. Oh. <laughs> I just freehanded, man. I just drew it. I, you got it. It's like, I, I had to get it done. So I, I wasn't worried about any of that stuff. It's like, oh, I need a stuff. Okay, here's Storm. Okay, what's your, okay, here's Jubilee. I just freehanded, drew it, put it out there, and uh, that became the logo. <laughs> when, when you, when you but, got, yeah, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when you, when you guys are designing it, like, I mean, Obviously, I mean, you work in animation, but like how, when you guys are developing that first season, how much time and stress did you spend on the opening sequence? Because obviously it sets the stage, it's going to be on every episode. So how, how much pressure were you under to really develop and deliver a really top flight you know, opening sequence that's going to grab someone right from the get-go? Like how, how did you kind of approach that? Because again, you know, this is a project that you have a lot of passion for, but then, you know not everyone feels that same level of passion. Not everyone knows if it's going to work and you have to really deliver on this opening sequence. So what was that like developing it? Well, back then, um, like I said, nobody thought there were a lot of executives who thought the show was going to be one and done, that it wasn't going to be around. Um, and so when I had, when I had to design the opening titles, I got a, I I didn't have a luxury of time. I think I'd do it in a week or less, maybe a weekend. And so what I did was I just started, I drew about, three minutes 
of an opening title that we only use one minute of. <laughs> I just kind of started drawing stuff. And, um, and I just kept drawing and drawing and drawing. And then we, when we looked at it together between myself and, and Margaret Lesh and Will Minio, we cut it down to a minute. But uh, in, in the, ex, in the uh, Lee Walls book, um, he published the entire three minutes, it's there, of the storyboards. Mm -hmm. So you, I just put everything in it. I mean, you had, you had Mojo, you had um, <laughs> Apocalypse, you had um, um, all the other villains you, you got to see over, over a period of time were all in the opening titles. Uh, the Brood and stuff like that. Um, but so I basically the opening titles was basically a stream of consciousness I was just drawing and drawing and drawing just okay this would be good oh this would be good oh yeah and we can go here oh it was that kind of thing I, I, I was just drawing like a madman just but I was drawing but it was all fun but it was like I was just trying to again trying to channel being an eight year old but now that I have, by the time I got to do the X-Men, I had been in the business for 12 years. I had 12 years of being a storyboard artist and a director. So I brought that that experience to bear at the same time I tried to channel my inner child at the same time I'm drawing it. And so that's where it all came from. I just, I was just, when I would draw, when I would draw from one panel to another, I had no idea what I was going to draw. Really? It, it, it wrote itself. Wow. And then... Yeah, and then we just I got that, and um, it was basically the authority of you know approval of that was myself, Will Minio, and uh, Margaret Lesh, who was the CEO of Fox Kids, and we cut it down to a minute, and that's what you guys saw. This is a kind of a random question, but I mean, obviously a big, I mean, great visuals, but you also have that iconic theme song. How, if that theme hadn't been there, like that, that theme song, how different do you think the reception to that opening sequence would have been? <laughs> oh, I've, I've had to deal with shows that terrible theme song, man. It was like, <laughs> oh, I was like, but the thing is, the version you guys like and saw was maybe version number 13 or 14. Really? I mean, we got some really crappy ones that start in the beginning you know they try oh yeah take you know they tried to send it to us like oh take this one and we both reject it nope try it again <laughs> try it again it was done by Saban and they basically were used to like doing theme songs knock it out you take the first and second version and that's it mm -hmm. well we kept pushing it back because we we knew this is our only oh. chance to do the X-Men we're never going to get a chance to bite another bite of this apple. So we kept sending it back, sending it back, sending it back. It was getting real pissed at us, but we, we wanted something that was more felt like the show. And I, if my memory serves me right, I, I believe one of the versions he, he gave us had a little piece of that song da -da 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 -da, somewhere in there. <laughs> and we said, look, take that and blow it up, okay? Do something with that, and that's what that's when it started becoming the 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 intro that you guys like. But we had to; it was several several type uh, rejections to the theme song that they were sending us. One of the things that's uh, it discussed in the Lee Walt's book as well is that uh, is a you know the trip to Toronto that you had to take 
when you guys got the first kind of uh, audio back um, of the you know the recording of of all the voice lines and how terrible it was, and you had to kind of you know scramble to uh, try and get the thing recast. Um, I, it's hard to imagine that now, obviously given you know the amazing voice actors that ended up being on the show. But just how bad was that original version? Oh God, it looks like Super Friends. <laughs> it was really over the top. People weren't talking to each other. It was just like. It was like someone who didn't know, okay, it's, it's someone that, that didn't understand cartoons that they were talking over the top, and that's you know, it's like all that kind of crap. And I was like, <laughs> no, oh, you know, it was like, no, 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 that's not what we want to do. And we had to, um, I had to go there and uh, help them to, you know, as as Yoda would say, unlearn what they have learned, you know, something like that, you know. But we mm-hmm. had to teach them to bring everything down to a normal register. And we wanted acting. I mean, the the final actors that we finally got were actually we didn't we didn't want to use the traditional cartoon actors. We went out and got actors that work in a theater, who are on stage, and that's that's where Cal came from. That's where Lenore Zahn came from. You know, they were like stage actors. Uh, even um, I think uh, George Buza, who's uh, the Beast, mm. they're all stage actors, and so they had that training knowing how to project emotion with just the voice, but not cartoony. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with the, with voice actors doing cartoony because there, there are shows that, that that kind of voice is appropriate for, mm-hmm. but it wasn't for ours. It's interesting because it feels like there was the kind of the sea change happening, which you can kind of see in your show and also, I guess, Batman at the time, where the traditional kind of 80s, 70s, 80s uh, animated shows started to change. Uh, in terms of the overall tones, and again, the you know that's typified by the music. It's typified by you know, again the voice acting, and it starts to change, become a little bit more. I don't want to say mature, but just a little less kind of zany than it maybe it was in the seventies or eighties. What was that like for you to kind of see that happening when you're on a show like X Men, which again starts to create a bit of a sea change? It was well, it was refreshing because we we were I was part of. When I got into the industry, I got into the industry in 1980, in the early 80s, I think it was 81, I think. So I had been apart and around since then, watching the shows that got created and done. And, you know, I was, you know, G.I. Joe and stuff like that. And it was, you you could see the change kind of happening slowly, but it really took off between the X-Men and Batman of, uh, the kind of shows that we, you know, we we wanted to do for a long time, but we weren't like myself. We weren't the ones in charge. We had other people. Who, we weren't the directors. Hmm. We we're more were the storyboard artists and stuff. And it wasn't until you got a chance to become the director. Now we got a chance to make to to uh, take the shows and make it into the shows we wanted to, wanted it to be. Um, I got to get chat. My, my first chance at directing was on uh, the syndicated G.I. Joe episodes. And uh, so I got a chance to cut my, get my experience, cut my chops on, on, on directing there. And uh, even, uh, I also did the G.I. Joe movie intro, mm. which was G.I. Joe Cobra attack around the Statue of Liberty, which was fun. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was, uh, it was a good progression from where we were 
And once, you know, for me, it's like once you got a chance to be in charge of something, you could make a difference, mm. you know. And there weren't that many of us that um, were able to get in that position in between the 80s and 90s. Um, like when Bruce, Tim got a chance to do Batman, you know, he did something totally different that had never been done before. And Warner Brothers, you know, Batman going back to the uh, Fleischer's uh, look, because mm -hmm. he's a fan of the old stuff like I am. And uh, for me and uh, the people we were involved in the X-Men, we knew we, we didn't want to write, we didn't want the show to be like Super Friends or Scooby-Doo. We wanted to write stories that were, you don't write down to kids, you write up to kids. So we were trying to write to teenage and above, but also balance it, knowing that our demographics, in order to stay on the air, were between eight and 12. So we had to make the shows, the look of the shows to pull in that demographics and have the stories pull the kids in, but they may not understand all the subtext the first time they see it. And as they would get older and see it on reruns, more of the, the adult subtext would come out that they would understand that they didn't understand the first time. You know, uh, you know, kids being abandoned, kids being adopted, uh, bullying, uh, you know, society, you know, chastising you because you're different, that kind of stuff. We wanted to put that into the shows, but we tried to make it subtext, mm -hmm. you know, to them. And so I think that's why the shows have lasted so long because we we tried to write something that was entertaining to the parents but also visually entertaining to the kids when you were I should say to that demographics when you're eight between eight and twelve it appealed to you quite a bit mm -hmm. and um, and for me being a fanboy from back in the 60s I knew exactly what to put into the shows to make the shows uh, fun to watch and it by adding the cameos, I knew, I had a gut feeling. I didn't know, but I had a gut feeling that if I added the cameos, it creates expectation every week. Mm. Of like, oh my God, did you see this? You know, what, what are they gonna show next week? You know, and it, it kept the ratings up because I think they had, a, it created that expectation in kids to wanna watch the show, mm -hmm. you know, and not miss an episode. For sure. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, given the period, like, you know, you're animating some of these characters for, you know, the first time that they've really been in any other medium. Like, you have characters who are so fresh and new at the time, like Cable, Bishop, you have that brief moment of Deadpool. Like, these are characters that are literally just being created a, a couple years earlier, and suddenly they're already on, you know, these, these TV screens, and people are watching them. Millions of kids are seeing these characters who these, you know, had only just been created. Was that exciting for you to be able to kind of bring in these brand new characters was that something that you were less interested in because you maybe wanted more legacy characters like how did you feel about using characters like Cable and Bishop I I thought they were um, fun <laughs> <laughs> um, it was fun you know because Cable had been out in the comic books and said okay we can do Cable so we just had to figure out you know the voice casting and like okay what kind of voice are going to give them you know like rough and tumble you know, oh, you know growly um <laughs> that kind of stuff and you know and the fun part we the fun part that we had also it's like with gambit had only been out for about a year he was pretty much an unknown character like like with jubilee nobody knew who really knew what they sounded like what their personalities were like 
but we were able to um, really mold, especially Gambit's um, a character, so that he's he became super popular. And I think most of it became because of the uh, the cartoon show, because he was pretty much a cipher. When we saw it in the com- in the comic books, he was pretty much he didn't have a be- a person a real personality. He had an accent, but not a personality. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to to imbue that into the character and made him more fun. Um, it was, you know, it was fun. It, I, I keep, it's kind of an overused word that I use. <laughs> it's fun, but it's the best way to describe a lot of the things I was doing on the show is that I just, I just, it's a kid in the candy store. I just wanted to have fun with every character I was playing with, put it out there and, um, and just let the world see it and keep my fingers crossed that, you know, my enthusiasm for the material would translate through the TV screen Mm. to the viewers. So, you know, we had no, you know, we had, there's no no internet, there's no likes, none of that stuff. (laughs) It's um, flying by the city of pens, and so I just had to, a lot of it was just gut instinct. And, okay, this doesn't work, this will work. Because I, I would redraw storyboards that the artist didn't do a right good job. I would just restage it. Mm. Um, sometimes I'd move dialogue around to another place where oh, it works better over here than here. Um, I did that on, uh, let's see, season one, the last episode. Um, I moved some dialogue around. There, There's a scene in at the end of 13 where Magneto's helping... Xavier against the mm-hmm. master mode. That's all. Yeah. That wasn't in the script. Oh. I made it up. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I made it up. All of that, their, their, the way they talk to each other, all of that was in Act Two. Oh. So I stole it up. I stole it up. I stole all that, that interplay between the two of them from Act Two. And I created that in a situation where they were working together in Act Three. And I put it over there. I just made it up because I wanted to reestablish that they were frenemies. You know, mm. these are friends, but they have different methods. So that was kind of like stuff I would do to try and make the show work better for me. Mm-hmm. I said, "This feels, this feels right. This feels right." You know, Magneto and him working together, even though they're they don't agree on things, and um, like all the fights, usually eighty percent of all the fights. I redrew because <laughs> I'm really good at drawing action and, and stuff like that. So I would uh, just redraw it. Like there, I think in the, there's a scene in the last episode of the first season where you have Wolverine fighting the uh, Sentinels in a dark cave and goes light, dark, light, dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like a strobe effect. You only see him when he's cutting the, the legs off from under the Sentinels. But that wasn't, I made it all up. I wanted to Oh yeah, this, it just hit me. The ins- the inspiration just hit me. I said, "Okay, this will be great. Let me try this." You know, I just made it up. So, I did a lot of that throughout the season. So throughout the, throughout the series, I should say. Two things about that specifically. So one, that's the type of stuff that would be in your book because <laughs> um, it's 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 an awesome story. Um, two, I've always loved that sequence, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. Uh, about how dynamic it is when Wolverine's fighting and again you have the Sentinels blasting and that's the only time you actually see the whole thing lit the fact that you just kind of 
you know, came up with it and just drew that is pretty incredible because it's such an iconic part of that episode. And it's part of uh, the visual style is just so strong because it would have been so boring to just have him fighting in a, in a, in a lit cavern or, you know, in the, in the tunnels there. But the fact that you have that strobe effect, it just adds something, uh, a level of nuance that makes it so much more exciting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it, it was, it's kind of like, it was kind of like the, um, opening titles. Like I said, I drew so it was a stream of consciousness. When I, when I got to that part of the storyboard, it was drawn so boringly. I got to say, okay, I got to <laughs> fix this. I can't let this get through. So I started drawing it, and then I said, okay, I'll, I'll have Wolverine lock Gambit out, and he goes and takes them on by himself. You know, and um, yeah, it just it just it was un it, it drew itself. That's the best way I can describe it. I I, I drew it without thinking. I guess that's the, the the best way, right? Um, I I yeah. I know we're, we're relatively uh, close to the end of our time, and I didn't do any of your your history as a as a comic fan or any of this kind of stuff because again, there's so many questions that kind of came to mind. One thing I would be remiss to not mention, just because I was a huge fan growing up, is uh, I'm curious what it was like working on a show like Cops. Oh wow, <laughs> that was my I consider Cops to be it was fun. I think I was working at DIC at the time, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a, it was like an in between bridge because I think we had finished all the stuff. I had finished all everything at Marvel Productions. They had shut down, and then I got a chance to work on Cops, um, and you know, that was fun. I, I remember it being fun, and I, I think I lasted one season because after that, I got a chance to move from being a storyboard artist uh, to being a director. Hmm on okay what is that thing called um uh, uh karate kid no wait yeah karate kid okay no shit i'm sorry sorry to say that word no <laughs> i went cops was an in-between thing and then i went to become the director of captain planet that's right and then captain planet i became the director of karate kid that's right what, yeah. what was that so, process? Sorry, I will get back to cops for a second, but like, you know, transitioning from being the storyboard artist that you'd been for eight or nine years and then moving into directing when you, when that happened, did you feel like, yes, this is where I belong. This is what I should have been. I, I've been, I've been training all these years to get here. Oh yeah. I've always wanted to be a director. Cause I've always wanted to try and be the one to like mold mm. the episode into something I think would be exciting. When you're a storyboard artist, you're like, a cog in the machine. Okay, mm. I did my act one. You, usually shows have three acts. I did my act one. May, I make this, that act as best I can. And you turn it in, and that's it. That's the last you see of it because it's the responsibility of the director to have the vision of the entire show in his head. And it's for him to mold the show the way he thinks it should be. Mm. So I think of Cops as being, it's a nice show, but it was a show that it was my transition show. Mm until I got another shot of being a director, which was Captain Planet and then Karate Kid. What, what was so. the, the kind of, uh, when you take on those roles uh, on those two shows, um, what was the kind of learning curve for you to kind of uh, learn how to, you know, now you're, now you're the one in charge, you're not the cog anymore? Um, you learn that um, it's a lot of damn work. <laughs> <laughs> Because when you're just a cog in a wheel, you get a, you get a script, you draw the storyboard, you turn it in, you never see it again. Mm. And, but when you're a director, I have to go through the script, make sure it works, hand it out to 
three storyboard guys that I chose. I get that back. A script that was once maybe 35 pages. Now I have 300 pages <laughs> to look through to make to see how well they did it. And so I have to go through, see what they drew, make sure it matches the script, make sure what they drew was not boring or bad. If they if they didn't do a good job, then I have to put post-its on the pages mm. and either send it back to them, or if I have no time, I'll redraw it myself and give it to my assistant to do the cleanups. And um, so I, it was, it's very much in your self-interest to find artists you feel will put out a show that is what I want to see. Mm-hmm. And so um, you find it out very quickly. It's a lot of damn work. Yeah. But, you know, it's satisfying when it comes back from overseas. But, you know, you got, when you're, when you're a director, it's not only, that's everything I'm describing to you right now is pre-production mm. before you send it overseas. And then when, you, when it comes back from overseas, that's a totally different, it's a totally different uh, set of problems you got to deal with because sometimes you'll get the film back and it's, they make mistakes. So you got you to say, okay, the eye needs to be on the face, the, the mouth needs to be on, the, you know, there are things like that are obvious mistakes, you got to send it back and say, okay, I need you to fix this. Mm-hmm. But, but you also have to uh, cut, you know, you have to cut the, you have to make the, cut the film to length. Um, like the length of a show might be 22 minutes, so you got to cut. When it when it goes overseas, you might tell them to animate 23 minutes, but then you get 22 back, and you, I mean you get 23 back, and you got to cut it down to 22. And uh, so you got to go through and re-edit the board and take out all the bad stuff and put placeholders in places where you hope that you get your retakes. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, you lock the picture, send it out for sound and music and, and stuff like that. And as the retakes come in, you drop them into the show. And then you do a mix with all the stuff I just described. And um, uh, a color correction, then you send it off to the client. Um, but you do all that at the same time, you're sending stuff off to the client. At the same time, I'm still getting boards every week. <laughs> I'm still getting 300 pages of storyboards from these people. Wow. At the same time, I'm trying to spit a show out to the net to the to the client. So you find out that it's a lot of it's a lot of work. You got to be able to uh, multitask an awful lot. Did you did you find that on X Men because it, again it was a little bit more of a passion project that when you had some of that stuff come in that you were more likely to do a lot of the the kind of the redrawing on your own because it was something that meant more to you than maybe the other projects did. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely true. And so a lot of stuff that I might, that might be marginal, that I might let go on the X-Men, I tried to never let it go. Mm. Okay, so I, I would look at it going, okay, I don't want to see this come back like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just redraw it, even if it was in a primitive um, uh, style, just so I know if it, if it comes back, I'll, I'll you know, I, this is something I could put on the air, and this is something I I don't my my name being on. Mm. I could stand behind it. Mm. So I had a lot of nights of working late, of doing stuff like that. It was um okay. Let's see. There was a show called um, 
Time Fugitives, part one, part two. Mm-hmm. Really nice episode. But they, they sent me the scripts, part one and part two, at the same time. Oh. So I sent the... I, yes, I sent part one out to a crew of three people, part two out to a crew of three people, and they both came back about the same time. And if you... Part two is basically a repeat of part one. You know, it's like a time loop. Yeah. You know, going back in time. Uh, the first time it's Cable, the second time it's Cable and Bishop. And so a lot of the fights that were in part two did not match part one. <laughs> so I had to change part two a lot to match part one. Hmm. And, um, Oh God, that that took a long time. I had to, I had to delay part two getting to overseas because of that. Because it it took at least another week to do what I wanted to do to match it. Because it's a time travel thing. Um, it needs to match up to part one exactly the way they did it. And so I had to do a lot of. I had to do a lot, but see, I was the only one that could do it because. Um, I'm the only one who, who knows what happened in part one and part two. The story editor, the, you know, the script matches up, mm-hmm. but the visuals don't. Mm. So I had a lot to redo. There's a section in part two where Bishop is fighting, I'm sorry, where Cable is fighting all the X-Men from a, a rooftop or something. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a minute of uh, of action without words, without dialogue. The reason for it is that I made up all, I made it all up. I made up brand new fights and actions and, and seeing it was like a stream of consciousness uh, to to add, to create a new fight that didn't exist in part one. Because in part two we have Bishop, Bishop is involved in this time loop and also Rogue. So we had two new elements in the timeline that what didn't exist in the, in the previous one. Mm that I had to accommodate for. It turned out very satisfying, but boy, that was a ball buster. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like I feel like something that uh, X-Men animated series fans were robbed of was that when they did make the um, the DVD collections about 10, 15 years ago, that they didn't have you and the Lee Walds come in and do some director commentary or a creator commentary because there's so much interesting stuff that's in here and how these shows, like in some ways it's like small miracles that any show ever gets made. Um, I think that's generally true. That is so true. That is so damn true. <laughs> And even more so when it's a show that's good. Like, I mean, like, you know, it's just because everything could go poorly. Like, you just never know, right? Like, there's so many things that have to go into, you know, this delicate balance to make a show that's very enjoyable and good. And so I just wish that we had been able to, you know, enjoy these types of stories and finding out all this kind of intricacies of how these shows were put together. Because it's more fascinating and more enjoyable to appreciate them when you know how how much crazy work went into this stuff, how, as you said, some of it was stream of consciousness or having to reconstruct things whole cloth or move dialogue over from other spots where it would make it more appropriate. There's just, it sounds like there's just such a, such an alchemy to creating this show that again, it's almost a, you know, a miracle that it worked. Yeah. Um, I, the one thing that I can say is that we were, it's one of the few shows that I've worked on that the writers and the, and me, we're all on the same page. We all wanted to do um, 
a, a good show the way and we wanted to write it for above the demographics we were, we were trying to service and um the lee walls and the writers actually knew nothing about the x-men <laughs> they um they were very good character they could write char- good character stories but they didn't know the x-men and so they would ask me about who's this who's that who likes this one you know i knew all that stuff like in the back of my head so i could give them an update of what everything was and so if either the writing or the drawings were got off off track i would just course correct on my own um either deleting something or just redrawing stuff and see because i was i didn't have to answer to anybody it just i just made the decision to do that mm-hmm. and so you can't do that anymore because if i did if i did that i have to send it up for approvals and you know mm-hmm. yada 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 and and with the, with the x-men I just no i this is the way i wanted to go this way um like in time the one thing i added in time fugitives one um i think apocalypse outgrows the building until like he becomes a giant mm-hmm. and he blasts the x-men and, and he he kills them they they turn into if you go frame by frame you'll see they turn into skeletons and then they turn into dust <laughs> none of that was in the original script i added that because i wanted to up the stakes mm. of part two showing how impossibly powerful apocalypse was and that's the one villain they can never beat they had to outthink him so yeah i added little little things here and there to try and uh uh, make it interesting, make mm-hmm. it comic book, in, you know, keep the comic book kids interested and keep basically the, a general audience involved with the show. So it's interesting again. Yeah, like, I guess I could write a book. <laughs> that's what I mean, right? Like I was saying before, like it, it sounds like you're the one who was able to kind of steer it because you were the fan. Like you were, you were the voice of the fans. You're the one who was advocating for what, you know, comic fans would want to see and what would help grow new comic book fans if they saw this as well. And that if it wasn't you bringing that, you know, adding additional depth to the background characters, adding in your cameos, bringing in your knowledge of these characters, and that way they were supposed to operate and kind of bringing that into the writer's room as well, that we wouldn't have the show we ended up being blessed with. So, I mean, really, we have to thank you for adding so much to what the show ended up becoming. Yeah, well, thank Yeah, I, I, I caught a lot of mistakes. And there are mistakes nobody would have seen, nobody caught but me. I mean, I had a writer once write you know storm creates a storm he didn't know the character so he wrote that storm spins around <laughs> in midair to create a storm and it was in the script and I just I just took my pen and just crossed it out <laughs> and then I just wrote what she does she flies up puts her arm saves a speech and boom there's clouds so I, I caught a lot of little mistakes like that mm-hmm. but you know if it had if it had I guess if I hadn't been there and had if they had animated it, the fans would be going, "What the hell is this? What's she doing?" You know, <laughs> I, I caught a lot of those to keep those from, from on the air so that it was more um, more like the books. Mm-hmm. What, I just remember what I was going to say earlier is that um, both myself and um, Eric Leewald and the writers, we all agreed um, to respect the source material hmm. and that there's a reason why the X-Men are popular. And so try and put the X-Men on the screen. Just 
take the X-Men, put it on the screen. Don't try and change stuff because you can't, you know, that I, I don't believe in that. Mm. It's like, no, take the books, put them on the screen because that's, that's you know, respect, respect the material. And so I did a lot of that to try and uh, make the shows uh, respect the original source material and put it on the air. Mm. When you're working on the show, I'm just curious, and maybe you weren't involved, but I'm just curious if you were. Um, do you know how many sound tests they went through to get the claws sounding right for Wolverine? Oh, the, oh that, the, the sword thing? Yeah. Just like this, the, this, I, I, the sound of his claws coming out and like the sound effects that they use are very kind of very memorable and they're instantly like you know what's happening. You could hear that and not even be looking at it. You'd be like, oh, I know what that sound is. So they're very memorable and they really work for the character. I'm just curious if there was like a lot of sound tests that went into developing it or if it was relatively easy yeah. for them to pick it out. It was really relatively easy. I mean, the, the guys who did the sound effects, who, who did the Foley, um, you know, they let us preview it or they actually let me preview it. I heard it went, you know, he gave me a cup. I went, yeah, he, this sounds right. I mean, he took basically a couple of uh, sound effects or swords and and mixed it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I told him to do is like, you know, make this one louder, make this part louder, this part softer. But it was mainly the uh, the sound editor who came up with the sound. Mm-hmm. I just get, I just dropped my two cents after he he did it. But yeah, it didn't take that long now. Before I let you go, and again, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with me this evening. Um, I we talked about Jack Kirby, but I didn't ask about what it was like working with Stan Lee as a as a contemporary working at Marvel Productions. Oh, Stan, that was another you know uh, gift of of uh, of a you know for me because it's, it's like I grew up in the sixties reading all the stuff like you know reading Stan Lee and uh, you know and, and you know watching all the drawings of Jack Kirby, and here it is. In, I think it was 81 when he hired me to work on it, there was a syndicated Spider-Man series mm-hmm. and here I am working with Stan Lee every day and he's like two doors down from me in the, you know, down the hallway it's like <laughs> oh my god I'm working with Stan Lee every day he, you can hear him talk and it's, it's like uh, it's, it's kid in the candy store it's like I just couldn't believe I had to pitch myself almost every day to, to I'm working with Stan Lee and I worked there for about 11 years, working with Stan. And it was like, great. It was like, um, I, I, it's, you know, I met, I met my two heroes, which was, you know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. I met John B. Summer and Gil Kane. Um, the only other hero I, I never got a chance to meet was Hayao Miyazaki. Mm. He's in Japan, he never comes to America. But, because um, he did some of the early Castle of Cagliostro, um, Lupin, La Puta, um, Totoro, my friend Totoro, those kind of films. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the only, that's the only one I never met, but I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I at least I got a chance to meet four out of the five. That's not, um, that's not bad at all. <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, when you, you know, when we, when we parted and then we would meet, uh, past Stan, you know, something maybe later on at a convention or something when the, you know, after Marvel Productions went away, you know, here's Stan. He sees him. Oh, he remembers my name. Hey, Larry, how you doing? I was going to ask if he remembered your name because that's always the the joke is that he didn't know wasn't always great with names. No, I know he had. I found out later on because he did hire me to work at his company called uh, Stanley Media, mm-hmm. 
and um, he, obviously he knew my name, but man, he had a really bad memory. We, uh, <laughs> on, you know, I'm working, but you know, about that time, I'm working with a 60, mid 60s, going on 70 year old Stan Lee back about then. And so in order to get production through the system with Stan, because he'd approve something, and then we'd go ahead and we'd, we'd leave and bring him back a variation, like, okay. And he'd see it again going, what is this? I don't like this. You know, we have to develop a system. It's like, when you approve something, Stan, sign it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could duplicate that signature. So we would bring it back to him for like a, additional approvals. You can see that he did sign it because he had it. Yeah, he did have a real bad memory <laughs> uh, in, the, in the late 90s. But in the 80s, he, he, it, it seemed to be fine. When I was working with him at Morrow Productions, it's just later on in life, it, yeah, he got older and, you know, memory's not as good. Which, I guess that's why I should write something while I can remember anything right now. <laughs> that, that's right, yeah. <laughs> but, but a lot of the stuff, yeah, probably needs someone like you or someone... Because a lot of stuff doesn't it doesn't pop in my head until someone asks me a question, and it kind of like the details were. Oh yeah, I did this, I did that. You know, I was uh, I'm just sitting down. I was joking with a, a friend of mine uh, before we sat down today and saying that like really, I could just watch X Men the animated series with you and just have you talk about oh that's what I did here, that's what I did there. Like I think people would want to read something like that where it's you know kind of commentary. On, on all the work you did. As you said, like there's so many things that you mentioned just in our brief conversation today about like, oh, I didn't like this, so I you know, I created this myself. Or like, this wasn't in the script, I did this. I moved this around. Like that's what, I think people, people, people have such a fondness for that show and people grew up on that show and people like my age who, you know, were, were, they were 10 years old at the time, that's what, that was their gateway into the comics. You know, they were, didn't necessarily see the comics in as much of the newsstands because they were starting to really disappear. But suddenly so they see it on, you know, Saturday morning cartoons it's exciting as you said it doesn't talk down to them it talks up to them um you know it's really exciting stuff and you're a big part of that so who wouldn't want to find out more about you know the magic that was that show yeah yeah you're right i probably should <laughs> sit down and do that with someone yeah i'm free that, that, okay <laughs> okay I'll, I'll remember that uh i'll remember that offer um yeah I, I um the the I remember stuff when I see it. So like when I watch some of the uh, Disney Plus episodes, you know, watch it on mm-hmm. there, and I I'll see stuff like, oh yeah, I forgot I did that. Oh, did that over here? Oh, you know, I, there's, there's several in 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 gags, and I can't. There are places where I hit characters uh, that fans are just discovering. <laughs> um, there's a Nightcrawler episode where Gambit, I think it's Gambit and Rogue are in their ski outfits and mm-hmm. the camera goes from left to right and as it pans you see Doctor Strange you see Clea and then you see the girl Voodoo from um, um, oh God, Voodoo from that other series that Jim Lee created Oh yes, uh, Wildcats. Wildcats, yeah. You see, yeah, you, you see the three of them, and you see Mary. Oh, that's right, and you see Mary Jane. <laughs> but they're all just people in the audience that the camera goes by, and if you're, if you got a swift enough eye, the camera doesn't go too fast. But if you if you look, you're going, oh yeah, that's. They just and some fans just discovered it like last year. 
That's crazy that that like, yeah. you, you added all this extra stuff and we're just we're just now discovering it now. Yeah, yeah. But well, the nice thing about it is that um, uh, with Disney Plus, they've really uh, brought it back to to uh, an audience. I think I actually thought they forgot all about it. It's been so long, you know, it's almost thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was out of sight, out of mind, but now people can see it and look at it and they can stop freeze frame it they can look at stuff and go oh yeah look at this i mean you all the mistakes are there all the all the paint errors all of the uh things we never got fixed Mm -hmm. are still in the film but uh so all the blemishes are there in in, in addition to all the the secret uh cameos (laughs) you should just have a uh, just a list of all the cameos one day (laughs) I guess I should. I never. I've never sat down and, and did it. I, I, uh, again, I just kind of did it at the time. Like I think there was, there was one where they were doing a mind probe of Gambit. Mm-hmm. They were looking for somebody, and I threw a, I threw in Ghost Rider because there was an ep- there was something that Jim Lee was writing that involved Ghost Rider. That's right. Yeah. I just tossed him in as, as I just tossed him in as like a brief memory. And boy, did I, you know, on, on, on Twitter, what the kids really liked, really loved that, that uh, cameo. You should almost uh, have, a, like, a list per episode, but don't tell them where, and just have people look for them. <laughs> it's like a where's well, though, but it's all the X-Men cameos. Oh, that's true. Oh, that'll, that'll be, yeah. And the people might like that, you know. If they know it's there, yeah. they'll look for it, right? Like, if, if they know that there's something to look for, people are going to try and want to find it. Because there's something exciting yeah. about that, right? It's Again, and it's being able to, uh, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, for a lot of these people, uh, a classic of their of their youth, but with a, a, you know, a renewed, you know, oh, i got to find this thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I try and tell the on Twitter, look, you know, all the cameos are done for you. I did the cameos for the fans. Because for the general audience, they wouldn't know what it was. No. But, I, you know, I did that for the fans. I'm glad everybody appreciated that. You know, like, you know, like I said, I didn't ask permission. I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another reason why it could never probably happen today. Because there's not that level That's of autonomy. The, oh, no, no. It's owned by Disney now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's owned by the Mouse House. No way. Yeah. Anyways, well, again, Larry, thank you so much. We're a little bit over time, but thank you so much for taking the time to discuss. As I said, I could easily spend many more hours just plucking your brain and asking you questions about your storied career. There's so much that we didn't get to, so much we didn't talk about. But uh, if you're ever willing to come back, I would love to have you on to uh, you know plumb the depths of your your CV because there's so much other great material you've worked on as well. Okay, yeah, anytime in the future, that'd be fine. And. Um yeah, thank and uh, like to give thanks to the audience listening to this, and I'm glad you guys kept us on the air. You know, because the critical year was the first year. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought we were like one and one and done, but you guys, the fans, you guys kept us on the air. You kept the ratings so high, they had to renew us. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, Art, thank you to the fans. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much. Okay.